This morning we're going to be continuing our time in the book of Genesis. Um, so if you have your copy of God's Word, you want to make your way there. Genesis chapter 4. In the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, we have those epic words from Dorothy to her little dog, Toto. We aren't in Kansas anymore. In some way, that refrain defines a little bit of what's happening here in the book of Genesis. You see, Genesis 3, the opening act, the curtains roll back and they're still there in paradise. But by, before the chapter closes, before the, the curtain falls on Genesis 3, we hear the line ringing from the Wizard of Oz differently. We aren't in paradise anymore. Moses, who writes here to the Israelites who are in the wilderness, letting them know about how things began, now lets them know that this is how life looks differently in light of sin and the curse. This is what the chapter 4 of all of our lives will look like. It will be a life of struggle, of sin, of death, of hatred, of the curse, reigning and bringing havoc upon us. Saying to ourselves that we are not in Kansas anymore. And the truth is, for all of us, this very moment, as we're going to see in Genesis 4, we are either ruling sin or sin is ruling us. We are either ruling sin or sin is ruling us. I don't know if maybe you've been feeling the rule of sin in your own heart as you withhold the best from God in regards to maybe your finances or your time. Maybe sin is ruling your heart about that bitterness or the plotting of revenge as it grows toward that person who has wronged you. Has sin's grasp began to give you doubts about biblical marriage or the value of human life? Genesis 4 reminds us all this is not the way forward. This is not the path, the way of Cain and the way of sin and to be ruled by sin. Instead, it says to us, the only way to rule sin is to be ruled by God. The only way to rule sin is to be ruled by someone greater, to submit your lives to God. The interesting part about Genesis 4 is it almost has three big breaks in it. You hear in verse 1, verse 17, and then again in verse 25 that a man will know his wife and they will have a child. That's how this section breaks, and it brings to us some major truths. As we wrestle with this idea, rule sin or it will rule you. The story of Cain and Abel is a clear call to us all to resist sin's rule. That's the first thing we begin to see in verses 1 through 7. We are called to resist sin's rule. Verse 1 begins, now Adam knew Eve his wife. And so that's the refrain that you're going to hear throughout. Again, verse 1, verse 17, verse 25. This begins our first major section. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. So Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. He's a worker of the ground. And then the text begins to unfold about two different sacrifices, two different ways of approaching God, so to speak. It says in verse 3, in the course of time, time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Let's look just for a moment at these two sacrifices. Again, as we wrestle with this first idea of the call to resist sin's rule. 
So we have the first people, Adam and Eve, having the first child on earth, Cain. And now they have another son. His name is Abel. And so these two sons are growing up. And it begins to tell us about the offering that's being made. Let's look first at Abel's offering here in verse 4. And Abel, who is, again, the shepherd, Abel also brought to the brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So again, we hear about this. Abel's bringing the firstborn, in fact, the fat portions. Most of us, again, don't want the fat portions, but the fat portions indicate the very best. It's saying that he's bringing the firstborn from his flock, his, the fat portions. He's bringing the best of the best. I mean, it's, it's indicating at the very beginning, this is Abel's heart posture toward the Lord. Lord, you are worthy of my very best. Lord, you deserve the very best that I have. And so, Lord, I want to give you the best of me. I want to give the best sacrifice that I can. You are worthy of my entire life. In fact, that is what it means to resist sin's rule. It's a heart that looks to God and sees Him as so glorious, as so worthy of giving up the very best of your flocks the very best of your finances, the very best of your time, the very best of your days. Why? Because you have been captured by the heart of the Lord. And that is Abel. He brings the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions. And it says the Lord had regard for his offering. It's interesting. Why? Because the writer in Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this offering of Abel and gives it some instruction for us. Look what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, by faith, do you hear that? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So now he's got a commendation from the Lord. The Lord's commending him as righteous. God commending him, how? By accepting his gifts. And notice again, hear this this refrain, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We hear this idea again that his sacrifice is more acceptable, that he's commended before God. And we might ask why. Well, the writer tells us it's by faith. It's through his faith that God accepts it. This is the antidote to sin and unbelief. It is faith. It's the realization that God is holy. We are not. And yet in his mercy, he allows us to come to him by faith. Beloved, if we are to resist sin's rule, we can only do it by believing that God accepts us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's just that we know that we believe about God's goodness and His grace. And so, again, Abel is there as this example of faith. He's responding to God of who God is and His worth by bringing the very best of His flock. But the remainder of Genesis 4 focuses not so much on Abel as it does his brother's Cain. And as we see with his brother Cain, his sacrifice looks differently. Look with me, you would, back in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 4. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of, notice it says, the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he has no regard. And we wonder why. Well, I think some of the significance is the fact, again, that Abel brings the firstborn, the fat. Abel brings the best. And so when we read of this, instead of hearing fruit of the ground, we ought to expect to hear that he brought the first fruits. He brought the very best to God, but he doesn't. He's holding back. It seems to be that some way, maybe Cain's mind is, is that sacrifice and what we give to God is just this tokenism. It's just this thing that we do. It's seemingly going through the motions. 
but we keep back the very best for ourselves. What's the result of this? Well, look what happens. It says that Cain becomes very angry and his face fell. And then the temptation ensues further. Because the Lord says to him in verse 6, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is the moment in the story where it can go one way or the other. You see, some of you are right there in your life right now. It can go one way or the other, depending upon will you submit and look to the Lord or will you go your own way? Again, that doesn't mean that you may not still continue to be a part of the church and and, and sing the songs and, and know the verses and all that. But man, deep in your heart, there's something happening. There's a heart posture that says that this is more, more than just seemingly singing songs or knowing Scripture or being doing the thing on Sunday morning because that's what we do. No, listen, beloved, there is something deeper. There's something more that God is after. He is after our hearts, not some ritual. He wants a relationship. That's what's happening here. God says to Cain, listen, Cain, if you do well, hear that again, verse 7. Will you not be accepted? Cain, I I know, listen, you you haven't gotten it right yet, but but brother, I want you to know there's still time. There's still time today. You don't have to continue on this path you're on. There's still time, Cain. He says again, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But there's danger lurking. Just as there was danger lurking in the garden, look what he says. The Lord says to him, again, after that statement, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, he says, listen, if if you don't humble yourself, Cain, if you don't turn from your sin and look to me, listen to what he says here. Sin is crouching at the door. Now that word crouching, right? Some of you, some of you guys are are scares, right? You like to hide and and wait for people to come in. You're like, whoa, right? And they scream and you laugh and things happen and all of that. In some way, that's what we see happening here. The sin is crouching at the door. It's there waiting, looking for the opportunity. I think it's a reminder to us all that sin is not passive. We hear Peter saying to us, don't we? Be self-controlled and alert. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like what? A roaring lion seeking what? Whom he may devour. He's there. He's lurking. Even today in our midst, he's lurking in our hearts and our minds, trying to entice you away, trying to stifle what the Spirit is doing through the Word of God this morning. And listen, this is the enemy at work. He's crouching at the door. And notice this. Look what it says. It's desire. So he's speaking here of sin. He says, sin has a desire, and the desire is contrary to you. It is contrary to whose image you've been created in. You've been created in the image of God, Cain. You are to image me in everything you say and you do and your thoughts and your motives and your desires. But sin is there at work. It's crouching. It's looking for an open opportunity. And the desire is contrary to you. We're in that moment, right, where either we rule sin or sin will rule us. We're in the moment of moment of able, a moment of faith. Will we humbly bow or will we go forward? That's what he says. Look what he says there. Again, but you must rule over it. That's the call to, to not give in to these desires. And we might wonder, well, how? What does that look like? Well, James 4 tells us. James 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. 
Did you hear it? There was a call to submit and a call to resist. These are active things that we are to be doing. What's that look like? Well, for Joseph, it meant literally leaving his cloak behind and running out of the house when Potiphar's wife wanted to go to bed with him. For Hannah, seemingly on the other end of the scope, again, as some of us studied in Sunday school, is that Hannah was to keep praying and keep trusting even when the pregnancy test seemingly just kept coming back negative, negative, negative. She was to hold fast and to keep believing. Why? Because there is an enemy at war in the midst of it coming after our hearts and our minds to cause us to doubt God's goodness, to cause us to doubt God's favor and His pleasure, His love toward us. And so James says, beloved, we are to submit ourselves to God and to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We resist sin, what, how? By running to God and putting ourselves under his authority, under the authority of the word of God. And what might we ask? What motivates that type of resistance to sin? It's the very thing that Cain's been encountering throughout the story and he'll continue to encounter. Mercy. Mercy. Mercy is when you and I do not get what we deserve. Now, grace is getting what we have not earned, but mercy is when we deserve punishment and we don't get it. And that's continually, seemingly, the heart of God here in Genesis chapter 4. Cain doesn't bring the best offering, but what's God say to him? Listen, there's still opportunity, Cain. Cain, don't keep going forward. It's this offer of mercy, of God's grace, His kindness toward us. And that's the kind of grace, that's the kind of mercy that strengthens all of us in the moment and the time of temptation. It's just this God whose heart toward us is merciful and gracious. But might we ask what happens when we don't resist him, sin? What happens when we reject God's mercy? Have you wondered that? Here's what the text tells us. Sin rules over us. When we reject the mercy and the grace, the forgiveness of God, when we refuse to submit our lives to this word, beloved, sin rules over us. Look what happens beginning in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 4. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The truth is we've been so desensitized to everything that we don't feel the shock and the weight of this moment. I mean, literally just one chapter to your left, it was paradise, no sin. We've had one act of rebellion recorded in the Scriptures, and now what do we see unfolding so soon on the hills of that? Literally the next scene of the play, the curtain comes up, and we have murder. Beloved, it does not take long, and the warning is this, if we in our hearts reject God, we are dangerously Headed toward rebellion, hatred, murder. All these evils began to flood our hearts and our minds. And where did this begin? It began with the parents of Cain and Abel not treasuring the word of God. It began with Cain himself not treasuring the word of God and rejecting. You see, beloved, this, this is, I think this is one of the things that's been ringing out of my heart and mind this week. The truth is most of us in this room have not seen how we've spent time alone with the Lord. We haven't. Most people in this room don't know about the time that you've spent or not spent with the Lord this week. 
But over time, beloved, I'm telling you, this text rings out that guess what? We may think we can get away with not treasuring the Lord and seeking His face, but soon, soon it's going to begin to manifest itself in our outward actions. It's a dangerous warning here from the life of Cain to not heed the Word of God, to not seek His presence and His face continually. And again, it's not shocking to us, but man, this is the first children and they, one of them murders the other. This is shocking. Thinking, how did it get to here already? Sin is crouching at the door, beloved. And it will get you faster there than you could ever imagine as well. Be warned. Let our souls take heed from this text. Might we ask, well, what is Cain's punishment? Well, verses 9 through 16 begin to unfold that before us. Then the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, what happens is when we begin to fail to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we begin to fail in that vertical relationship. The horizontal relationships soon follow. Like, God, that's your job. I don't have the responsibility of taking care of them or watching out for him. I don't know. You're God. You take care of them. It's a selfish, self-centered way of life that begins to consume and manifest itself in our lives. But look what happens further. And the Lord said in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You need to keep that in your frame of mind. We're going to come to that again here in a moment. And now you are cursed from the ground. So again, we hear this pronouncement of, of the curse further. Well, why is this so major? Again, what is Cain's occupation? He's a farmer. Which is open its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Listen to this. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth. And seemingly, right again, the fact that the ground is no longer going to yield its strength indicates the reason why he's probably this fugitive and this wanderer. He's constantly having to go somewhere else looking for food. Right? It, this, this curse, it's sin is bringing just this disastrous result that Cain could not have imagined. Again, that's what, again, it's just the same thing from the garden. Sin, Satan tempts us, beloved, to think it's just that fruit, it's just that moment, but it's never just that moment. It's never just that action. It leads to such disastrous consequences. Brothers and sisters, our sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. And when we minimize sin's consequences, we minimize the holiness of God, and ultimately what we do is we minimize the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. As the old saying goes, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Look what happens further. Cain says to the Lord, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. Now, there's much into this, right? That What is Cain alluding to? This being driven away. He talks about from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. It seems that, again, we, we, we talk about the kinsman redeemer and there was obviously other children that are going to raise up by Adam and Eve, and maybe there's a threat that he's going to be killed by them to redeem their brother Abel. We don't know, but what we realize is that sin does what it does in all of our lives. It breaks relationships, doesn't it? This is with his own family, this, this breaking of relationships. Verse 
And so the Lord says to Kim in verse 15, not so. Again, he's, he's worried, right? Whoever finds me is going to kill me. Not so. He says, if anyone kills Cain, <clears throat> vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then we have this interesting statement. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, it's interesting, right? What exactly is that mark? And if you want to discuss more, we can talk about it. The truth is nobody exactly knows. But it seems to be something physical that is on Cain that provides some sense of awareness, like a, a protection of his life. Today, all of us who have taken Satan's bait, who've given in to sin's rule, I hope that you see yet again and again that God, yes, listen, guess what? He deserved, because of his murder, he deserved, right, by man's blood that we spill man's blood, by man's blood shall we be, our blood be spilt. Cain deserved to reap the consequences, and yet what do we see again and again? God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy. I mean, I think that's one of the things that just overwhelmed me about this passage this week. How merciful and patient God is. Man, it's hard. He's a God of second chances and third chances and five million. I mean, this God is so, he's, just be honest, he's so unlike me. I mean, I, I just hear in the refrain of this 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no what? No record of wrongs. Wow. That's his heart. He's just showing mercy to Cain again. I mean, this is grievous sin, beloved. And God's heart toward Cain continues to be one of mercy. But I think the biggest punishment or the result, so to speak, of sin happens in verse 16. Listen to it. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and set on the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think this, this is the heartbreak of this passage. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. It's similar, right, of how Genesis 3 ends with Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden. It's just a sad moment of leaving the presence of the Lord. It's just hard to hear. It's just a reminder, beloved. I think we all need to hear this today. Sin separates us from our God. It separates us. And I think, again, just part of the warning is, is that Cain had been doing what seemed outwardly right. He had pursued God through sacrifice, but his heart was not in it. His heart was withholding the best. His heart was really about his own interest and not the glory of God. And I think it must warn us as believers here in America who have grown up in the church not to lull ourselves to sleep, to think it's just about showing up and punching our ticket. There must be something more and deeper, and God is after our hearts. As one pastor said, Cain is like the kid who goes through the motions to clean his room only to get on with what he actually wants to do. Or the kid who throws their vegetables onto the floor. Or possibly there might be some in our home who found a way to put them in the napkin and have to go over by the trash can ever so sneakily. I guess it's the same way, right, with Cain here. Like he, why? Because he seemingly gives the appearance of doing the right outward thing. But his heart is only motivated by his own desires. 
And don't as parents and grandparents and others, we see it so easily in our children, and yet we think we can fool God with the very same thing. It's foolish to believe that. That we can somehow hide those things from God, disobey Him, and yet still have our desert too. The truth about Cain and his sins is the same thing that's true about us. The word sin always has I in the middle of it. It's Cain's heart is just like ours. It's self-centered. It's self-seeking. It's angry and bitter toward God and toward others. Maybe I would just ask today, do you find yourself distant from God? Find yourself growing cold to the hearing of His Word, whether that's publicly being preached or taught in your Sunday school class or just alone with Him during the week? Does the singing of the words on the screen just feel like repeating a more old songs that you knew or maybe something you're trying to learn, but your heart's just not in it? I think it's a reminder that sin is here among us, crouching at the door. And the Word of God calls us to not be ruled by it. And the only hope, beloved, is an act of just faith. It's seeing that God sees and knows our hearts and knows that they're depraved and wicked, and yet He continues to offer us grace and mercy, so much so in the Son of God coming to give His own life. It's the hope, the glimmer of the gospel, even in the rebellion of Cain. But again, we may think, again, as we think about sin and contemplate its impact, I think the temptation I've seen in my own life and hear so often from others is we just think that sin only impacts us and it won't have an impact on others. That I, I mean, you know what? I can make this mistake. I can keep going down this road. You know what? If anybody has to pay, it'll be me. But beloved, that's a lie from the enemy. Why? Because what we see here, sin's rule over society. We see sin's rule over Cain's descendants beginning to unfold in verses 17 to 24. I just want to kind of maybe highlight a few things in the text. And just draw your attention just to a few of them. It says in the beginning, verse 17, again, this, hear that refrain, this new section. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujalo, Mahujael, sorry. And Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I think in Lamech here, this, this, this descendant of Cain, what we find soon is this disregard for two major areas of life and society. One is for marriage, and the other is the disdain for life. And in many ways, these are the primary foundations of society. Marriage and the sustaining of life, innocent life, protecting all life. First, look what Lamech happens here. It says, verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. This is what's called polygamy, right? Having more than one wife. It's, it's clearly a deviation from what God has just set forth in the previous chapter. My goodness, how quickly. And the truth is, right, this, this deviation from God's good design in the garden 
it, it, it trips up some of, the, some of the most godliest of men in the entire Bible. I mean, Abraham ends up with two wives, and guess what? Those heirs are constantly at war. Jacob has two wives, and those two wives are constantly, Rachel and Leah, fighting with one another. David's entire household and legacy is wrecked with Bathsheba. And then Solomon, with his wives upon wives and concubines upon concubines, ends up with the kingdom being divided. It's a warning that when we reject God's word, sin brings consequences that we could never imagine. Not only on us, but on the lives of others around us. It's also noticeable, right, though, that despite this sinful rule, it doesn't mean that nothing good can come from sinful society or sinful people, right? We see things happening in places like verse 21, right, where it says that he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe, that instruments are being developed. And further, look at that, they, they forge instruments of bronze and iron. And so there's these instruments of manufacturing made to help work. So again, just because a culture or society is sinful doesn't mean it's incapable of doing good things. But Cain's descendants, beloved, it's not only about their disdain for marriage, it's also their disdain for life. Look what happens. Lamech said to his wives, listen, hear my voice, you wives. Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. It appears that Cain is the fool of Proverbs, that a fool gives full vent to his anger. Listen to him brag about it. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, I don't need God to protect me like my descendants did. I can take care of myself. You strike me a little, it's like, I'll kill you. That's what it appears to be from the text. Just this small wound. He says, listen, I will strike back to kill. He is the epitome of repaying evil for evil. Sin's breaking down of society is the very thing. Guess what? Marriage the view of one man and one, one bio, I even specify, one biological man and one biological woman. The sanctity of life from, from the womb to the tomb. These things are being waged, the war is being waged in this very society and culture in which you live. Beloved, that's been since the beginning. This isn't new. This is happening here in the beginning. It is the result of sin and the curse. And yes, we ought to be a voice to speak up for the unborn or the minority or the immigrant, not only in social media or through voting, but also through things like fostering and adoption. To be our brother and sister's keeper, not by becoming silent when it comes to speaking about marriage between one biological man and one biological woman, but also of those of us who hold fast to our marriages and actively love those who oppose us. For we are like Cain, called to resist sin's rule. But we haven't. And so we might wonder, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for people like us? Cain's among us. And this hope begins to ring out in the closing of this chapter. That Christ, this descendant, ultimately who will come from Adam and Eve, this descendant of Seth, Christ, He will rule sin for us. Sin has ruled us long enough, but there is coming one who will rule sin for us. This is what happens beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another, seemingly a substitute, offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people, listen to this, this is how the chapter closes. This moment of hope following all of this. 
This happened. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's this hope, right? Coming from this line of Seth, right? Again, trace back to Adam and Eve, the substitute for, for Abel who's been killed by his brother Cain. And it's this hope of, of that there's one coming who will rule over sin. And how do we do that? Well, look what he says here. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the very thing that's mentioned of Abram, or who's also known as Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, and 21. It's this, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord. What is it saying to us? These are people who are worshiping God. That is, that is rejecting and resisting sin's rule. This is why we gather every Sunday morning. In some way, it is a declaration, it is a reminder to our souls that we must resist the rule of sin. So we sing the songs, we give, we pray, we confess, we hear God's Word, we, we hold brothers and sisters accountable, we pray with one another, we partake the Lord together, we welcome others into our membership and amongst this body through baptism. All of these things are what we are doing, beloved. As we worship the Lord, we are resisting the rule of sin. You see, unlike Cain's descendants, Seth's proved faithful to God. Because from Seth come the patriarchs, people like Abram, and ultimately the nation of Israel. And if you go to Luke chapter 3, you'll actually find that it's Jesus himself who comes from this line of Seth. We might ask, well, how does Christ conquer sin? Well, guess what? He does it in a way that echoes that of Abel. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are, to, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, hallelujah, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, listen to this, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We might ask, well, what does he mean there when he says that there's a better word than the blood of Abel? What, what is it referring to that Christ's blood, right, is now speaking a better word. That's what we're after. That's thought. Well, think about Abel's blood, right? It called out for vengeance and justice. But Christ's blood, it calls out and says that justice has been satisfied. It's saying, listen, it's not awaiting the day when justice will finally merit what needs to happen here because of sin. No, the death of Christ on that old rugged cross, beloved. It says the justice of God, the holiness of God towards sin his righteous right anger towards sin. Listen to that. Look what it says. Look what it says here. Get back. Verse 23. And to God. Notice what it calls him here. The judge of all. That's what's levied against us. There's a God who is holy and going to judge every single one of us. No man or woman on, in this, on this earth or in this room today can escape the judgment of God. It's levied against you. The only question is what will you do about it? Listen to the hope that there is a possibility that we could be made perfect. How? The answer comes in this mediator, this one who becomes between us. And what does he do? He gives his blood. He gives his life. He dies in the place of people like Cain. People like me. People like you. It's this unbelievable love. It speaks a better word, a word that says that God 
has seen us fully in our sin and yet loves us completely and is willing to accept us by grace through faith. It's the hope of the gospel. Again, I think sometimes we're here and we hear it and we think, well, man, surely God would die for somebody like Abel, the good old boys and the good old girls. No, the Bible says God dies for his enemies. God loves the Cains. Did you hear that? God loves the Cains. Hallelujah. Let that ring in your soul deep. It's a God who loves the Cains, who shows them mercy, who is long standing in that faithful love. But might we ask just a few applications? How did Christ overcome sin? And might that provide a way for us too to walk in that? Consider the things of Christ. He was filled with the Spirit. Guess what? By repentance and faith, we too receive the Spirit. And Romans 8 says that by that Spirit, in Galatians 5, similar, we can put to death the deeds of the body. It's God's Spirit that fills us, beloved, that empowers us. But knowing that thing about Christ, how He loved the Word. We too, as the psalmist says, we have hidden Your Word in our heart that we might not what, church? Sin against God. Christ was filled with the Spirit. He, he loved the Word, but He also he obeyed the Word. It wasn't just merely knowing it, right? There's obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's Christ who testifies of our perfect standing before God. It's Christ who has filled us by the Spirit. It's Christ who loved the Word and obeyed the Word. But, beloved, I want to remind us that it talks about the fact, again, here in verse 24, that Jesus is the mediator. But guess what? He needed no mediator. He went directly as the high priest in the very presence of God. And now Hebrews 7.25 says this. Listen to this in your battle with sin today. Because listen, I know we're all battling it. We're warring as believers. There is constantly the desires of the flesh or against the desires of the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 is telling us. Hear this. I hope and pray it like, man, it just, it's like a healing balm on your soul. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for you. I can't imagine what it would do for my soul or your soul if we walked now in the back room back here and Jesus himself was down on his face praying for you and I in the areas in which we are struggling or the very temptations that we will face this week. Could you imagine how that would move your soul to think, he's praying for me. He's crying out for me. And that's what God's word says. He is the mediator. He is your intercessor. He ever lives, Hebrews 7.25 says. To intercede for you. He's calling out for you in your struggle of sin. He's calling out to God on your behalf. To the unbelievers here today, did you see the results of Cain's sin? He was a wanderer. He was never at home. He was constantly restless. You see, sin promises rest, beloved, but it will never, ever deliver. To the unbeliever today, if you would have rest, come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and look upon Him, trusting in the name of Christ. To the church, might we hear again, 1 John 3, remind us, do not be like Cain. Forgive. Who are you at odds with in this very church body? Who are you at odds and tension with in this community? Or maybe it's the person you slept beside last night even. Your very spouse, your parents, your children. Beloved, don't be like Cain, the Scriptures say. But image our Father and show grace and mercy. Lastly, to the church, 
Realize that a life of worship, a life of forgiveness, a life of daily surrendering, of offering your best to God is not wasted. The scriptures never once say that Abel wasted his life. Moreover, and even in an infinitely greater way, it never says that Christ wasted his life in giving his life up for others. Guys, when we give our best to God, when we surrender daily our lives to Him, you're not wasting your life, you're saving it. I want that to encourage you and compel you forward. I leave you with this last and final question. Will we submit to sin's rule or will we submit to God? That's what you have to wrestle with in Genesis 4. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you that I have hope to preach today to my soul and the soul of this precious church. Father God, I pray now, thanking you for your word, thanking you that you came to die for people like us, the Cains. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that it's not about how good we can be. Thank you, it's about what he has done for us. Let us in his victory go and live a life that is no longer ruled by sin, filled with your spirit, loving your word, obeying your word, and treasuring the fact that you right now are interceding for us. Hallelujah to the better blood than that of Abel. The blood of Christ. In his name we pray, Lord. Amen.